Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, good morning, good morning. All right, where in the word are you today? I am really sensitive to um, the pain and residual grief, the historic trauma that many, many people experienced in a variety of ways as children that seems to, well, it doesn't just seem to. It rises up, it rears its head, it pours forward, it interrupts the day, it interrupts the night. Um, and I'm aware of that. And I know that there have been some headlines recently that have um, reminded or resurfaced historic traumas in the lives of many of our listeners. Um, those headlines are related to um, a person who broadcast for many, many years, um, and his name's Ravi Zacharias. And I, uh, without delving into all uh, that happened there, because there are plenty of folks who um, have published about this at length online, I simply want to say to those of you for whom those stories have resurfaced trauma in your own life, um, please, please, please reach out and get... um, Get some counsel. Get some help. You are not alone. You are not at fault. Um, People care about you. You are seen. Your story needs to be heard. Um, There is hope. There is is healing. And and so I just want to, I want to say that. And, um, and I want to acknowledge to you that um, we will address this topic um, more deeply and more broadly when we have a guest with whom it's appropriate to talk about these things. So I have I have heard you. Thank you for um, lifting up your concerns for one another in our listening uh, fellowship. So uh, the where and the word verses for, for today come from Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 6 to 16. Let no one deceive you. For because of these things, the wrath of God does come upon the sin, the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that have been done in secret. But when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. 
Our partner in ministry, Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute, is waiting in the wings. We're going to talk about the difference between equity and equality and the push of the new Biden administration seeking to bring uh, not only the Equality Act forward, but something called equity policy. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Ben Johnson is back from the Acton Institute. You can find what he is writing at blog.acton.org. Ben, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. Good morning. So um, we have uh, heard about and talked some about the Equality Act, which is being pursued to amend the 1964 civil rights legislation, um, and it would include sexual orientation and gender identity as protected classes. But the Biden administration is also seeking to move the racial conversation from equality to equity. Um, What is the Biden equity agenda and what are the tools being proposed to engineer an equity of outcomes? Yes, there's a very big difference, even though the two sound very much alike. Uh, a lot of people don't catch the nuance. So uh, you're, you're very perceptive to pick up on that. Uh, the term equality, of course, is uh, traditionally what uh, the civil rights movement has been about, what most Americans say that they favor, which is uh, everyone having equal rights, equal responsibilities, equality before the law. Uh, that's what most people are after. Uh, that's not, however, what um, the uh, the equity agenda is all about. The equity agenda comes out of critical theory, and uh, the idea there is that since the government discriminated in the past against certain classes of people, now the uh, the government should discriminate in reverse. It should discriminate uh, against uh, majority of Americans in favor of those who have been discriminated against in the past. Uh, of course, this is this is fraught with a lot of issues. It's blatantly unconstitutional, but uh, this is this is the new agenda. The idea that uh, the government should should stand up and uh, and defend and not only defend but in fact favor uh, certain groups and therefore would have to disfavor others. Now, some of the things that they're talking about doing here uh, are things that not only are are bad overall, but also won't even get the goal accomplished that they're going for. Uh, Biden has talked about uh, this from from his first day in office. In fact, Kamala Harris uh, released a video uh, called uh, Equity versus Equality, which uh, which you can uh, take a look at at blog.acton.org, which uh, we've got in our in, in its entirety uh, embedded there. But uh, ge- she generally explains the difference between the two terms. One of the things that uh, Biden promised from day one is what he calls a whole of government plan to install equity uh, throughout every layer of society. Now, one of the things that that includes, of course, is the Federal Reserve. Uh, so the idea is that uh, there are certain certain uh, players in the economic world who believe that if you overinflate the currency and you keep interest rates really low, then that will that will boost employment. And uh, so the Federal Reserve actually modeled this. They said, let's let's take these ideas into consideration, see what would happen. And what they found is that, yes, it's true that uh, you know, there, there would be an increase in employment generally, and that would, that would help uh, those at uh, the bottom of the economic sphere overall 
regardless of, of class or, or uh, ethnicity or any other group. Uh, it would, in fact, help uh, a black people more, uh, just a little tiny bit more than white people if you were to follow these policies. However, there's always the law of unintended consequences. The laws of economics apply across the board. So the idea is that if you inflate uh, the currency, so you have inflation, like we had in the 1970s, and you have low interest rates, uh, kind of the opposite of what we had in the 70s, so high inflation and low interest, people aren't going to keep their money in the bank, uh, which is why there's extra employment in the first place. People are out investing. They realize that the money is not keeping its value. They need big investments. Well, the people who are most likely to invest, as it turns out, are wealthier people, and for the most part, that means white people. So white people get a far bigger boost out of these policies than the black people and the minorities that they're intended to help. So ultimately, uh, these policies that are, that are intended to uh, equal the balance actually make things worse in, in their own terms. Uh, forget about whether they're a good idea, forget about whether it's good economics, even whether it's constitutional, it's simply it fails on its own terms, according to the Federal Reserve. So there's always this law of unintended consequences. It boomerangs. And for those of us who are, who are Christians, what it comes down to is that it's wrong to discriminate. Uh, the problem isn't that the government discriminated in favor of one group or against one group. The discrimination itself is the problem. Discrimination is immoral. And government has no business engaging in that. When you go down that path, ultimately, uh, you're going to end up backfiring on yourself and those uh, who you intend to harm, uh, you intend to help and harm those that uh, you intend to aid through your policy. Um, ben, that's that's really helpful. You guys can read more at blog.acton.org. Um, ben, how about we take a very brief break? When we come back, there's a lot of conversation about uh, the minimum wage, a fifteen dollar uh, federal minimum wage is now attached uh, or embedded in the $1.9 trillion um, uh, COVID relief package, but there's a lot of debate over that. Um, Senator Hawley has a uh, has an option for people to look at, and now um, so does Mitt Romney. Um, so we, I just want to talk about all of that when we come back. Can we do that? That sounds great. All right, fantastic. The minimum wage debate up next. All right, continuing my conversation with Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. Um, ben, where are we in the minimum wage debate? Well, the minimum wage debate is definitely heating up. Uh, you know, this is something that it looked very much endangered not that long ago because uh, the word had gotten out economically about a $15 minimum wage. Uh, it was something that uh, Bernie Sanders had campaigned on. It was something that Joe Biden had campaigned on. And uh, when Biden took office, originally was part of the American Rescue Plan, his uh, anti-COVID um, vaccination plan uh, for the American economy, and uh, along with all of the other economic incentives, that was one of the aspects that uh, originally looked like it was going to come back out because it lacked support. Um, particularly Joe Manchin uh, had talked about some, some issues that he had with it, and it looked like it wouldn't even get 50 votes uh, in the Senate. So it looked as though it was going to be stripped out Biden sort of insisted, and, and those behind the Biden administration spoke up, said that they wanted this in the bill, and it has remained. So now we have a couple of alternatives. As you mentioned, uh, Tom Cotton and Mitt Romney have a proposal uh, to uh, increase the minimum wage as well, while controlling for immigration. Also, Senator Josh Hawley, uh, who is an up-and-coming voice in terms of the Republican Party, 
particularly among the uh, the Trump wing of the Republican Party. He's probably their favorite senator. And Hawley from Missouri has introduced a bill. Uh, it's kind of a, an unusual uh, uh, idea here. It's what he calls the blue-collar bonus that uh, anyone who makes up to actually $16.50 an hour gets a, a refundable tax credit uh, worth, worth part of the difference. So when you pay your taxes, you will get back the difference between whatever it is you make and uh, the federal minimum wage. So uh, ultimately, the government would sort of guarantee that. However, uh, in addition to the government making up the difference instead of, instead of the employer, uh, you also have the idea that this is only for, it's supposedly only for U.S. citizens, so he's going to require that you have a valid Social Security number. Supposedly, that's going to control for immigration. Also, the uh, Cotton and uh, Romney Act has an immigration component as well. First of all, economics don't change when you add immigration control. Economics remain economics. So all the problems with a, a federal minimum wage remain in place. Uh, as we, and we've talked about those before. They're pr primarily barriers for young people, uh, for first-time job uh, claimants, and for minorities. Uh, they, do, they are disproportionately impacted by this, as uh, the great economist Thomas Sowell has spent his entire life and his entire academic career showing. Uh, primarily, they work to lock out people from getting that first job. And if you don't get a first job, you don't get any other job. I, you, you need the first job to show you how to hold a job. Uh, the federal minimum wage isn't intended to take care of a family. It isn't intended uh, to maintain an entire family. And the vast majority of people who, are, who receive the minimum wage are 24 years and younger. So very few people stay there. And most people are already making something pretty close to $15 an hour or more, so it's essentially irrelevant. But in areas where the economy is depressed, in industries where they can't afford $15 an hour, but they can't afford $7.25, and for young people uh, who are just getting their first job, it's a Joe job, and they happen to be the first one in line, it's a big deal for them, this would lock them out. Uh, and then the Holly bill has its own issue. It's supposed to be just for U.S. citizens. The way they do that is you have to have a valid Social Security number. Of course, most illegal immigrants who are currently working have valid Social Security numbers. So really, the, the border aspect of it is, is sort of moot. But uh, uh, again, it doesn't change the underlying economics. You have to ask yourself, when it affects a very limited number of people, it would put, according to the CBO, mil uh, more than a million people, up to three million people out of work, where they, instead of getting a modest boost in their wages, they would go from what they're making now to zero. Is the harm worth the boost? Yeah, that, I think that's the part that people don't seem to um, seem to get. If you hike the minimum wage um, across the board, employers are going to be able to employ fewer people because it's not as if employers are going to magically suddenly have $15 an hour to pay a person who they're currently paying $8 an hour. They're simply going to eliminate another $8 an hour employee in order to pay one employee the $15 hour required, and the employer is going to save a buck an hour. I mean, exactly. I, I mean, that, that's how it's this... going to work out. I mean, they're going to one person's going to lose their job, and one person's going to be expected to do twice the work in the same amount of time, and yes, get paid almost twice as much. But I mean, I mean employers are going to do the math on this. Like, I anyway, I, we could or, we could belabor or, or this point. I mean, yeah. Yeah. or fire them both and automate the job. Uh, yeah. you, those of us in radio certainly knew about that. I started out third shift in radio. Uh, today there is no third shift. Yeah, we in radio. knew you were shifty. You are shifty. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Totally. Three times over. But, okay, uh, say but, I know. So okay, so can we set this subject on the table because I'm sure we're going to have an opportunity to talk about it in the future. Because I want to um, hear you talk about um, uh, the candidate for the HHS post, 
um, the Health and Human Services uh, candidate to be who's sitting in confirmation hearings now, um, Xavier Becerra, um, because you have um, written some things on Becerra and the First Amendment that people need to hear. Yeah, Becerra uh, has a very unusual idea of the First Amendment. He was attorney general in California. He succeeded, he succeeded a woman by the name of Kamala Harris uh, when she moved up from that position in 2017. So Becerra, uh, very hostile to the pro-life movement. Uh, I've got the history of that in the article. But uh, for us, what's really particularly concerning, he was asked about the First Amendment because he was one of the people who sued the uh, Little Sisters of the Poor. He has said that uh, conscience rights are offensive and dangerous. And so someone asked him, called him on on the carpet about this. And I've embedded the video at blog.acton.org about Javier Becerra. And where, where the assemblyman is asking him, he says, the First Amendment protections do not apply to churches. They only apply to individuals. And you can watch him say that. Uh, the quotation's kind of long and extended, so I, I won't uh, say it here on the air, but you can watch it and see him say it for yourself. Now, what he says is that they bootstrap the First Amendment. Of course, to bootstrap means that you substitute something that doesn't belong in place of something that does. So uh, essentially, they're saying that churches and religious institutions are playing a three-card money game with the Constitution where they insert themselves into the First Amendment, where instead you have the right to uh, the First Amendment, and I do, but churches don't. That's not the way that uh, that's not the way constitutional rights have been understood throughout history. I have the right to freedom of expression. You have the right to free expression of religion. But if we get together, we don't lose that. If we join together in a corporate group like a church or a synagogue or a mosque, or even a religious organization or a business together, we don't necessarily lose those rights when we join together. Uh, the the whole is not less than the sum of its parts. So, uh, and matter of fact, this was settled in 1952 in a Supreme Court case. Uh, that involved members of the Eastern Orthodox Church, Kedroff v. St. Nicholas Cathedral, where they affirmed that uh, the First Amendment uh, protects what it calls, quote, an ecclesiastical right, anything that would infringe upon the free exercise of an ecclesiastical right of a church is, quote, contrary to the principles of the First Amendment. So it's settled law. Now, it's funny, every time a pro-life individual goes in front of the Senate, they, they grill them, the the Roe v. Wade is settled law. Are you going to follow story decisis? Can you even do your job if you reject that? Someone over two days worth of hearing should have asked him, are you going to be able to do the job since there is settled Supreme Court precedence in this and you are going to be interacting with a whole host of groups who get their funding through the federal government through the HHS? Unfortunately, it's not an issue that's particularly well explored. Uh, for those of you who are interested, there is all kinds of um, reporting on the ongoing confirmation hearing related to this particular individual. Um, if you're looking for a back and forth that I think is worthy of spending some time paying attention to, um, Senator Steve Daines, Republican from Montana, had an extended back and forth with the nominee on the question of uh, restrictions related to abortion. Uh, Xavier Becerra not only refused to answer stonewalled, um, but was ultimately unable to name one, any, any restriction on abortion at any point in time for any reason that he would be willing to support. Um, Yeah, I got to tell you, I mean, I'm, you know, all right. This is a this is a confirmation that concerns us deeply for many, many reasons. The religious liberty reasons that Ben addressed and certainly the life concerns um, of which we are abundantly aware. Hey, Ben, thank you, as always. 
Um, it's so helpful. The things that you're writing um, at Acton are uh, are helpful to us as well. You guys need to check it out. Blog.acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Ben, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks so much. God bless, Carmen. Thanks, brother. You too. Go pet that cat, by the way. It's a howling cat. I will. <laughs> I know. Sorry, I love sorry. it. No, it's all mic. good. It's all good. Good morning, kitty. We'll be right back. All right, have you ever wondered, or when was the last time you wondered? Because it's really not a question of have you ever wondered. When was the last time you wondered whether or not God really cared about you, cared for you, was paying like close enough attention to what's going on in your life to actually know what breaks your heart and the hurts you have? Kids wonder those same things, and sometimes we as Christian adults have a hard time figuring out how to uh, tell kids or share with kids or assure kids that God cares for them. Um, We have Dr. Scott James up next. He's a like doctor doctor, like a physician kind of doctor. He's also an elder at his church and he writes children's books and we'd love to have him on when one of them uh, comes out. So we are going to feature God Cares for Us even when we are sick. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. When parents struggle over the behavior of their teen. I encourage them to step back and take a look at the bigger picture. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. No matter what's going on in your home today, it's not the whole story. The whole story is what God is up to, His bigger picture, which involves plans, people, and purposes beyond your imagination. I know it's hard to do. Your struggle isn't any less important. But use the difficult season to deepen your relationship with your child instead of simply trying to fix their behavior. Place it all in God's hands. He's the one who promises to cause all things to work together for good of those who love Him. And that's a pretty good, bigger picture. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. That's parentingtodaysteens.org. James is joining us now. His brand new book, God Cares for Me, Helping Children Trust God and Love Others When Sick. Scott, welcome back. Hey, Carmen. How are you? I'm well. So I tell people like you're a real doctor. Not that all the other doctors that we have on the show aren't real doctors, but they're like PhD piled higher and deeper doctors. And you're like a doctor that like puts on scrubs and goes to a hospital kind of doctor. (laughs) What kind of doctor are you? Pediatric infectious diseases. So I, I deal with bugs and drugs for the little guys. And you've been busy. This has been a busy time. You have seen lots of sick kids. Um, tell us what kids are feeling when they're sick and what they're wondering about God. Yeah, it's been a year uh, for all of us. Uh, kids in, are not impervious to this. So I've, I've seen a lot of a lot of sick kids this year. Um, thankfully, we can thank God, and I thank God every day, that uh, by and large, children uh, are much sev- less severely affected from coronavirus, um, this this new one that came out this this past year. So we, we still do see quite a few sick kids, however, and um, honestly, even if a kid is not severely ill, 
even just getting a mild illness or just seeing everything that's going on in the world around them, right? So they themselves don't have to be the ones getting sick to sort of have some of the anxiety and fear of the culture seep into their lives. So kids are struggling these days for lots of reasons. Uh, that's one of the reasons why uh, I wanted to write this book is just in the in the in the turmoil that kids are experiencing throughout all of this pandemic. Uh, I, I wanted to kind of shine a spotlight on on God and His loving comfort, uh, even in the midst of hard times. I feel like the book is really centered on showing not only kids but also their parents. Like, right? This is a this is a message to parents of kids who are sick, as well that God is right there. Um, So talk with folks um, who don't have a copy of the book in front of them. Um, What are they going to encounter when they open up God Cares For Me? God Cares For Me is a simple and relatable story about a little boy who wakes up feeling sick one morning. So he feels pretty crummy and and his parents kind of come in and begin to comfort him. He's sort of immediately, obviously not feeling great, but then they say, all right, we're going to go to the doctor and see if we can get you feeling better. And that makes him in even more of a bad mood because no kid likes going to the doctor. Um, I'm not offended by that. Uh, so it's it's essentially him kind of wrapped up in some pain and fear uh, in his illness and then his parents sort of coaching him through that and reminding him basically of the promises of God. So the, the entire book is just basically uh, the the people in this boy's life, his name is Lucas, so the people in Lucas's life are just sort of pouring scripture into him and affirming, yes, this is painful and this is hard, right? We're not going to like sugarcoat this. Yes, this stinks. You're going to go to the doctor and, you know, get tests done or something. That's scary. But even while you're going through that, God, you can take your cares and anxieties to God, right? He cares for you. Uh, we can turn to him in our time of need. We can trust him with our our anxieties and our worries. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's, it's basically just a, a book in which parents are going to have a vehicle, hopefully uh, easily accessible vehicle to rehearse the promises of God to their children uh, in the specific context of pain and suffering. Scott, I'm uh, I'm acutely aware in my own life of what it's like to be in the pediatric ICU um, and having to, you know, hold the child you love down so that the people who are doing something that is going to be helpful can do what they need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's that, and my sister experienced this as well with a with a son that you know went through the experience of childhood cancer and you know thankfully has recovered, but. You know, you're you're there and the there are people who are like you, who are the helpers and the healers, um, and they have to do something that is is incredibly painful. And the parent has to support the medical people in hurting their kid so that the kid can be helped. That's the moment I will tell you in my own life when now silently, but in my heart and in my head, I have cried out to God because that's when there's not enough of you as a parent. There's not mm-hmm. enough. I don't have enough. I got God's got to take that because that is too hard. And it's this. Oh, it's. It, I agree with you. It's so hard. I've been on both ends of that. It's this scenario where we have to walk through where sometimes the promises of God are good and plain, and his the plan ahead of us is just a, a, a black and white roadmap that anyone can see the logic in, right? Do this, do this, do this, and things will go well for you. Other times, we walk through trials and difficulty, 
and objectively what's happening in front of us cannot in any way seem good, right? Illness, sickness, death, disease, loss of job, loss of everything that's everything we've been going on this past year. These uh, objectively, I, I can't look at them at face value as an adult even, let alone as a kid and go, yep, that's obviously God's good plan for my life. And yet ultimately what scripture calls us to is to trust that even in those bad times, that is somehow God's plan for our life. And he somehow in his wisdom means it for good, right? And that good things will come of it. Uh, all things are, you know, uh, called for, for those who are called according to, to his good purposes, right? Like it's this trust in the sovereignty of God. Um, and it just, there's so many aspects of scripture where we can kind of go back and, and look at bad things happening to God's people all throughout. And yet God kind of weaving a story underneath and through it all saying, but I'm, I'm here, I'm preserving you. I'm carrying you through this. I'm, I'm the shepherd who's carrying you through the Valley, right? He's the, the one who's orchestrating. I think of Joseph back in Genesis where things just went horribly wrong in his life. And in the end, there's this big reveal like, Hey, God actually used that for a much grander purpose. He used that evil for good. And then I can ultimately look at Jesus Christ and I can say, look, the cross is a, an objectively horrific thing that should break all of our hearts when we look at it. And yet God used that horrific thing ultimately for the redemption of his people. So ah, God is mysterious in those sorts of ways. And it's, it's hard to wrap my mind around that sometimes, but I do trust even when bad things are happening, God is still in control. I, I'm not going to doubt his goodness. Um, based on kind of what we're walking through this past year. And that's a, that's a hard message, but it's also a message of hope. And so I, that's something I desperately want to share with kids. So that's kind of maybe the, even the hope, the, the point of the book is by acknowledging the reality of some of the bad things that are going on, it actually kind of makes God shine even brighter because you can say, mm -hmm. and he's, he's bigger still. Mm -hmm. um, let me, let me share with you right now, if you're listening and you're thinking to yourself, well, I need a copy of God cares for me. Um, let me also say, so does your children's ministry. So does your pastor so do the people in your church who are the on the front line of caring for families as those families are caring for children. Um, this is um, this is that kind of book and that kind of resource, uh, and it is God Cares for Me. It is a part of a larger series of books. The God uh, God Cares for Me is a part of the God Made Me series. You can find all of it at New Growth Press. Dot com, newgrowthpress.com. Scott James and I are going to take a very brief break and then we'll be right back. Scott James is a pastor. He's also an, or a pastor. He's a physician. He's a pastor. He is a pastor. He's an elder um, at, pastor. <laughs> at the church of Brook Hills. So he is a pastor. Um, he's a dad. He's a husband. Um, he is a pediatric infectious disease physician. Um, and he's an author. And the book we're focusing on today is God Cares for Me. But let me also say that The Littlest Watchman, Where is Wisdom, is one of my favorite kids' books. And so... Um, you should check out everything that Scott James has written. Um, uh, Scott, when you um, when you think about the things that sometimes you have to say to parents, um, when you have to say things to them that are true about their child that no parent ever wants to hear, um, I'm imagining that somewhere in there for some parents, there's a why question. Why? Um, why does God let? Why did God? 
do this or why did God allow this or why does God let us get sick? Those kinds of questions. And I'm wondering, um, you know, how you answer. Yeah, those are difficult questions to tease out, partly because in my role as a physician, I can't presume I know where the the family's coming mm-hmm. from, from a spiritual mm-hmm. background position. So that's, I, I've got to have my antenna up and be uh, continually uh, sensitive to the the messages that the families that I deal with, uh, that I work with and walk through these issues with are, are sending out. So if I, if I'm picking up on anything at all, that's of a spiritual nature, I'll, I'll be ready to kind of engage in, in a spiritual manner as well. So I'm, I'm explaining things kind of on a, uh, kind of a physical and mechanistic. This is this is why this is happening, right? This is how this infection got into this area for for your uh, for your child, and this is how we're going to help take care of it. If I'm getting spiritual cues, uh, and particularly, I mean, I, I do practice in the in the Bible Belt area, so a lot of people wear their faith on their sleeves here and are happy to talk about it. So if I know that I'm talking with a, a Christian family, I can. Um, comfort them again with kind of the, some of the aspects of God's sovereign control and his goodness, his trustworthiness um, that, that we just talked about. But it's also an opportunity to talk about a, another bad news thing, which is which is sin, right? Like the, the reason mm-hmm. that we're here is that this is a fallen world. The reason we're having to deal with some of this heartache is that we as, as a world have fallen away from God. And so it, it's the thing that I kind of like without kind of you know, in my role, I'm not going to be um, kind of ha- sitting there in a, in a clinic room or anything hammering on sin or anything like that. But I get to acknowledge a baseline fact that we all acknowledge, whether or not you proclaim Jesus Christ or not, that the heartache that we see in this world, this is not the way it's meant to be. There's there's something askew. There's something missing in our world. And then I ultimately, what I'm going to be looking for is as opportunities to kind of develop relationships so that I can get that to Jesus. So I can uh, help help a family kind of acknowledge that this heartache that we're going through, it's not meant to be this way. This is, death is not natural in this sense. Um, and then I get to point to an ultimate hope in Jesus Christ who has conquered death. And so I'm, uh, I'm always eager and looking for opportunities to, to kind of share, share Jesus's love in the midst of those conversations. I'd love for you to bear testimony um, to the role of the faith community and people who are a part of a local congregation um, who can then be called upon to support them and come around them and walk with them um, versus what you observe when families literally try to walk through these experiences alone. The support of a, of a faith community is massive. I mean, it's, this is one of those times when a parent is walking through uh, difficult times with the kids. This is one of those times where belonging matters. And so I, I see families who are supported by uh, a, a faith family who take seriously the call to bear one another's burdens uh, and to love one another and to outdo one another in showing honor. And I can honestly, you, you can see how that buoys the family. You can see how that, um, it doesn't make all the pain go away, right? It doesn't, it's not like a, a, a cure-all and it's like, oh, this is, this cancer diagnosis we're walking through is no sweat now. No, it's still a huge deal, but the support of uh, a spiritual family, a church family uh, that is demonstrating Jesus's love in the midst of that. As a physician, I, I I just honestly sometimes sit back and just bask in kind of the display of God's goodness and his testimony of love through his people. It's like a watching world can see the goodness of Jesus through the way that his people are acting towards one another. And as a Christian, I 
am sensitive to that. And so I can recognize that when I see it in the hospital and rejoice. Um, but Carmen, I got to tell you, I also have plenty of non-believing colleagues who can walk away and look at that and go, there's something, something different about the way that those, um, that, that, that family is being supported. Now, unfortunately, the inverse is also true. Um, and so when, when Christians um, behave in a way uh, that does not <laughs> reflect the glory of God and, and the goodness of Jesus's character, uh, my non-believing colleagues can walk away with their confirmation biases scratched, saying, yep, Christians are hypocrites. Um, and so that, to be honest, during all, not to go too dark, but <laughs> during this past year, honestly, some, some of the way in which um, uh, professed Christians have um, uh, not been particularly helpful in the public conversation has grieved mm -hmm. me because I walk away and, and have conversations with atheist science, uh, scientific colleagues um, who, who will point to some of that and say, see, your faith is worthless. Um, and that's, you know, that's a, that's a roadblock to my efforts to glorify Jesus through evangelism. Yeah. I want to talk about that love of neighbor a little bit, because I think that's what you're, what you're scratching on there. Um, you know, I know that as a, as a person who has had a family member who has, you know, moved through a period of his life where he was really medically fragile, um, mm -hmm. where his immune system was literally non-existent. Um, and protecting him from just the bugs that are out there all the time, the regular coronaviruses that are out there in mm -hmm. the, you know, in the form of colds all the time. Um, like we became hyper aware of that, the hand sanitizing at the front door and the wearing of a mask to protect little Larry when he had cancer um, was, you know, sort of like our preparation as a family for doing that for others um, in, in this past year. Um, you know, we have hand sanitizer and masks in our family because we recognize there are other people whose immune systems are maybe not as robust as ours right now for whatever reason. And um, we don't want people to get sick and we don't want to be the people that make other people sick, even without knowing it. Talk a little bit about the love of neighbor that is manifest when we not only take care of our own bodies well, but make sure that we are helping to keep other people from getting sick. Absolutely. That's actually one of the main themes of the, the book, God Cares for Me, is, is uh, highlighting the fact for kids that God cares for you, but he also gives us the privilege of caring for others as well. So it's, it's kind of love God, love people, right? Like that's the first and second great commandment. Uh, so the idea being that God, God cares for us, God takes care of us, and then he puts us in positions to bless other people through love of our neighbor. And that can take a lot of tangible uh, expressions. And so in the middle of a global pandemic, one way we love our neighbor is looking out for their health and well-being through some of these kind of, um, you know, reducing the spread kind of uh, uh, methods that are in place. Uh, methods, by the way, that nobody enjoys. So it's <laughs> no one likes masking or social distancing. I hate it and can't wait for it to, to, to be over. But the idea behind it is it's a short-term sacrifice. I use the word short-term loosely there, obviously, because we're a year in. But it's intended to be a short-term sacrifice that can get us past this period and protect lives in the in the meantime. So it's it, it is um, I would I would just encourage Christians to sort of view this general issue as not your own personal risk, but the risk of your community, right? And so you yourself may not be in a quote-unquote high-risk category. First of all, that doesn't necessarily mean anything because even I've seen people who are not at all high risk die of this. So that's, it's not like you being young and healthy is a, is a complete protection against bad things happening when it comes to this. But also, even if you don't perceive yourself to be in a high risk category, you certainly know people who are and have neighbors who are. 
uh, and the extent to which you can participate in reducing the spread within your community is going to help them out. And so just a, a kind of taking, you know, taking the, 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 I don't know, it's hard to phrase it like this because I want to say doing these things is, is a good way to love your neighbor. But then the accusation immediately is returned saying, oh, well, so if I don't like to do these things, you're telling me I don't love my neighbor. And I'm no, I'm not saying that exactly, but I'm just saying these, these are, these are good and tangible ways to love your neighbor. And so I would, yeah, I don't want to put a stumbling would, block in front of anybody. And so if this is one thing I can do that removes right. a stumbling block, um, then I'm going to do it. Like I'm going to go right. the second mile. I'm going to, right. That's, that's sort of the part of it for me. All right. You and I have to leave it right there, but I so appreciate who you are, what you're doing. Um, uh, can we, can we just close our time together by me praying for you on behalf of everybody out there on the front lines? Oh, I'd love that. Thank you. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for our brother, Scott. Um, thank you for every other man and woman on the front lines um, serving today in pediatric ICUs across the country, in children's cancer centers across the country, in infectious disease units across the country, um, in emergency rooms across the country, in, in, in doctor's offices across the country. All of those people who are going to touch the lives today of little kids and their parents um, on this topic and issue of health. And Father, we just ask that you would pour into them every spiritual resource that's necessary for the accomplishing of your will in and through them today, that they would be people of light, that you would protect them um, it, against all of all of the efforts of the enemy. And uh, Father, thank you for Scott today, his family, the congregation that he has the privilege of serving, um, and, and the people in the community um, where he serves as a physician. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Scott. Thank you. In, in all the appropriate ways, we totally love you. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> okay. We'll be right back. All right. The website you're looking for, for those of you asking about the book, New Growth Press. New Growth Press is the, uh, is the website where you can find the book, God Cares for Me, Helping Children Trust God When They're Sick by Scott James. Uh, and you can, you, yeah, you totally need to check that out. Um, all right. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. One of your favorite people, Peter Kapsner, is going to be here. Oh, we're going to talk about a range of headlines. And then I've got Matt Merker, who works with Getty Music. We're going to talk about corporate worship and how the church gathers in and as God's people. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.